You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and from Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, this is Postmortem. Consider the character actor. Movie stars come and go, some of them last and become institutions, some flame on and overwhelm the world and flame out with the onset of age or fading popularity. The character actor is defined by his range and versatility, his unique qualities, the many facets he would be called on to display. The movie star is almost always the good guy, the hero. Although he can be tempted by the dark side, by the time the credits roll, he is almost always redeemed. His human frailties only amplify his heroism and sex appeal. The character actor can have all those qualities too, but is not hamstrung by heroism or lasting good looks and facelifts. A single character actor can be a good guy, bad guy, expository vehicle, henchman, psychiatrist, best friend, worst enemy. The best of them bring unique personalities and physicality to their roles, and they are often called upon to be buried under piles of latex and still have their emotions and characters shine through. It's tough to be sympathetic wearing sawed-off horns and yellow contact lenses, but from the days of Boris Karloff's heartbreaking vulnerability in the 1931 Frankenstein, right before he tosses the little girl in the lake, actors with deep reservoirs of heart and soul can shine through the pounds of makeup under which they labor. Actors age and evolve, and the best of them have careers that are limitless in the variety of their roles. And if they can bring to the set a list of characteristics that are singularly their own, they dig indelibly into the consciousness of the viewers. One of the best examples of this special fraternity is the rightfully ubiquitous Ron Perlman. I've been lucky enough to work with Ron several times over the years, and we're going to put him on the slab and find out what makes him tick. Ron Perlman, welcome to Postmortem. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. No facelift here, baby. <laughs> Proudly. Yeah. In fact, uh, fact, nothing is lifted at all. Um, <laughs> but we'll get to that, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I, I love finding out where the beginnings happen. You were actually a trained actor in school, and your father was a drummer as well as a TV repairman. So I know how musical you are just by knowing you. Is that did your father feed that Jones? I, you know, I was, I was, there were a lot of musicians. My father was a professional drummer for a time. He, he walked away from it to, to put food on the table. <laughs> I'll tell you what, he should have stuck with it and commensurate <laughs> with the, the, the shit I ate when I was a kid. But anyway, um, um, my, my brother, older brother, who uh, we lost uh, early on in life was also a jazz drummer. Um, my dad's family were all, they all had to try their hand at performing in some kind or another singers, violin players, uh, stand up vaudevillians, et cetera. None of whom got far enough into, you know, the investment of a real life in, in those arts to be able to look back and, you know, and, and say, yeah, that's, that, that's who I was. That's what I did. But the writing was on the wall for me to be a musician. The problem is, is that I, 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 I had absolutely no discipline. 
and absolutely no desire to stay indoors and and uh, and and practice. Um, so there I was, a man in search of a fine art, mm. but with no no discipline and no real skills. And so when I found acting, I realized, oh, well, there you go, the, the, the perfect art form. You don't need either of those things. <laughs> and there I, I had an instant credential. It was like, you know, I was born to do this. Well, tell um, me how you did discover acting. How, how did that happen? Because I know you have the soul of an artist in so many ways, but how did that discovery, how did that light bulb come on? Well, it was kind of forced on me. Um, if I remember correctly, uh, I had, uh, before I did anything else on stage, um, and I wasn't looking to do anything on stage, uh, doing laps in, in, in high school on the swimming team and the whistle blow and uh, the... Uh, swimming coach was standing next to a very elegant looking gentleman. I'd never seen a high school teacher dressed that elegantly, that quaffed, that, you know, he had a, a different kind of patina than you see in the locker room, you know, in, in on the swimming team. And he blew the whistle and made me get out of the pool and made me go audition for the school play because, um, they had these auditions and about 35 girls showed up to audition and no boys. They there you round go. Up any boy. So they did a kind of a school-wide search for guys who, who sort of were misfit enough to not fit in anywhere else. And my name came up and, you know, they were only able to wrangle about three or four boys on this search. Well, those are good uh, odds. Yeah. So you're going to get a part, you know, and, you, and the chances of you getting a lead part are pretty, pretty darn good which is what happened. I got the lead part in this high school play. And um, the moment I showed up for the very first rehearsal, I realized that I was in a community of people even more fucked up than me, <laughs> like real miscreants, real hard to you know, imagine, real, you know, people that, that there was, there was no place for in this society or even in a sub society for that matter. <laughs> um, and yet, uh, these these theater rehearsals, you know, that we were um, thrusting ourselves into, for what reason, I don't know, because I'd never done a play before, sort of like everybody began to shine and everybody began to um, create a place for themselves. And um, there was this real community of misfits and miscreants that uh, grew very close to each other, that grew to depend on each other, that, that you know, it was like this this kind of beautiful exchange of, and also you felt like you were in a safe environment because you were no longer the most neurotic person, you know, <laughs> in your in your peer group. Um, so the rehearsal process was that, and then you, you got to performance, and you know you go on stage and you're terrified, and then you say your first line. And all of a sudden you're in command and the, and the nerves go away. And all of a sudden you can feel a thousand people eating out of the palm of your hand. Mm. And it's as um, um, seductive and aphrodisiac, mm. the power that comes with giving a performance that you've kind of crafted and, and evolved and in real time, feeling it 
affect a group of people who are there with their eyes on you and nothing else. For somebody who, you know, didn't realize, realize the degree to which I was craving attention and a place to fit, you know, this was, this was lightning bolt. And I never looked back. I've never done anything but act in plays and then eventually movies and TV and the like. Yeah, well, you, you have covered so many media over your career so far, you know, from doing voiceover for games and animation, as well as acting on camera and on the stage. But that first movie, I remember very well seeing Quest for Fire at a screening at Fox when it came out. And that cast was remarkable. And you really made your mark there. How did that come about? This is also a French filmmaker making this movie. Um, so how did uh, you become involved in that? Well, I wasn't, you know, my, my agents at the time who were more, they were more like a, um, uh, a nonprofit organization charity <laughs> to represent a guy like me, because they knew they weren't going to make a dime off of me. And, mm. but they were so devoted and they, they were so really, really fond of trying to help this, you know, this complete like two left shoe guy out. Um, but there were no film auditions. And then suddenly there was one. And they sent me this thing, it's a caveman movie. And the, what immediately comes to mind, of course, is, is Victor Mature and Virginia Mayo in 1000 years BC, where she's wearing eyeshadow and lipstick. And, <laughs> yes. and he's got a leopard skin thing, you know, with the codpiece and everything like this. And they, they, they all speak various shades of, of New Yorkese, you know. <laughs> right. He being from the Bronx and she being from, you know, a, a suburb of New Jersey. Um, and that's what I thought I was going to audition for. And the French guy who was conducting the audition, I mean, he actually had his sweater tied around his shoulders, which I'd never seen before in my lower middle class Jewish upbringing. Mm -hmm. And he was he was incredibly refined. And, and I said to myself, Jesus, guy, this, this is a motherfucker, you know like some sort of a, a trust fund baby. <laughs> somebody, somebody gave him a couple of bucks and he's going to make a caveman movie. <laughs> and and I, I, I just was so terribly, terribly insulting to him all throughout the meeting because I thought it was just this day class A kind of like, I, you know, even me who never even had a shot at being in a movie, I didn't want to be in this one. <laughs> um, but but for, for some reason, because he's French, he took all of my insults and, and, and you know, real kind of like disrespect as an asset. <laughs> I guess the French understand um, that form of, um, of um, abuse. It's a, you know, it's, it's their second language. Um, then I found I got a call back and I found I got another call back. And then all of a sudden I got invited to this group uh, audition which looked like there—it was the audition. There were about seventy-five men and women there, um, and um, it looked like it was the audition for the geek in Ringling Brothers, Barnum right. and Bailey Circus. There was one guy there was like six foot nine, and his head was this big. And nope. there was another guy there that had one arm coming out of the back of his neck, and another one coming out of his ass. And, you know, I mean, and then I was part of this group, so I said to myself. I really don't want to be in this fucking movie now, <laughs> but I, you know, they keep calling me back. Who am I to say no, right? Right. And uh, at the end of that audition, 
I'm playing in a softball game in the, the Broadway show league in Central Park. And this kid comes up to me and says, he's a casting director's assistant, trying to be an actor. And he says to me, can you believe how, how like you, you, you're, you're, you're on this very short list for this unbelievable project. I said, what the fuck are you talking about? He said, that, that Jean-Jacques Arnaud movie. I said, who's Jean-Jacques Arnaud? He said, that's the French guy that's doing the movie about prehistoric man. He's an Academy Award winner. He won the best, he won the Oscar for best foreign language film for black and white and color last year. And I went, oh, I, I remember that movie. That's who's doing this. Yeah, and he's got Desmond Morris and Anthony Burgess. And I mean, it's it's just this unbelievable, it's like got integrity and, and class written all over it. And he told me that like right before I went to the very last audition, which I almost blew because finally I was nervous and, and not disrespecting him. But that's how I got the part. Wow. So it must have changed everything for you to be a major part in a major studio picture by an Academy Award winning filmmaker. And, you know, you really brought a lot of the attention on that movie as far as the cast goes was like you and Radon Chong, uh, very specifically. So that had to have led to other offers. Were they all the kinds of characters that were outsiders, kind of the miscreants you were talking about. Um, what what kind of roles were you offered after that? None. Ah. I mean, you know, it 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 changed nothing. It was very different than anything I'd ever done. I mean, you know, I was, you know, I was being invited into this really rarefied, phenomenally elite world of uh a 20th century Fox film with a decent budget directed by an Academy Award winner and peopled by the, the, the people I mentioned, Desmond Morris, who was the most world-renowned anthropologist at the time, right. and Anthony Burgess to create a language, and James, uh, um, the great composer, um, James Horner. And, and you know, it was, it was as classy as could be, and it, it, it set me up to think that everything was going to change. And then the movie came, and went and nothing changed. And if you read my book, I had a kind of a, a, a really kind of tr almost tragic reaction to the fact that I, I thought my life was gonna finally start, get jump started and I'd be on my way. And, and the lack thereof caused a disappointment in me that was bigger than anything I could handle. So mm -hmm. I won't go into great detail, but yeah, it, was, it took a long time for anything to happen so you and had very, expectations and, and they were dashed. I had expectations and I got set up to have expectations by the whole community because, you know, I was hanging out with some heavy duty folks, you know, movies in shape of the 20th Century Fox. Alan Ladd Jr. was the guy who originally greenlit the movie. He was no longer president of the company at the time. Sherry Lansing had taken over, but I was hanging out in these people's homes mm -hmm. and being wined and dined and I expected that they said, you have given this performance that's a game changer and wait till you see what happens to you. And I got, you know, the big cosmic blowjob that, 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 and it, the net result of which nothing changed. The, the phone didn't ring, you know, there was no connectivity to what had just happened where there were all these expe expectations that I had never experienced before because I had never had an opportunity like this. So, that was the beginning of learning about what this business can do to you in terms of the navigation of who you are 
you know, uh, how, how, uh, how tough your chin is, you know, how you're able to take this appointment and process it in a way that doesn't destroy you. I mean, a lot of stuff took place, which is all phenomenal looking back on it now, but it was a kind of a, a really weird, interesting period. Well, what's interesting to me, too, is that so much of your early film work was international. You did City of Lost Children in, in France, and you were, I guess, the only English-speaking member of the crew who didn't speak French. Then you did Chronos for Guillermo. Um, so how did that come about? Here's this New York kid, and he's just made a movie that was a sensation. Everything kind of did not meet your expectations, but these movie offers are coming in from international filmmakers. Well, eventually things did start to get a little bit of a head of steam. And, you know, the next job I had um, as an actor after Quest for Fire, after nothing happened for a goodly period of time, was the same filmmaker, Jean-Jacques Anneau, was going to do The Name of the Rose. Right, and I ended up in that movie through a series of happenstances and and people dying and stuff, and wasn't meant to be my role. It ended up being my role. So there was this one-two punch. Now I've now I've been in two very esoteric films by a highly regarded international uh, filmmaker mm -hmm. of great integrity, and. Because of Name of the Rose, I was I ended up on this short list of people that they were looking to consider for this TV role of Beauty and the Beast, right. CBS. So that was the, the third part of the trifecta. You know, you have Quest of Fire, which everybody goes, yeah, you know, interesting performance, but what the fuck does he do? How many, how many, <laughs> you know, cavemen from 800,000 years ago? or 80,000 years ago, we're going to need, you know, in our next movie about cops and robbers, you know. Uh, but getting Beauty and the Beast and, and having that on the heels of those other two, there began to be a bit of a body of work that got, you know, unnoticed. I guess that's what Guillermo noticed because one of the very first things that happened as a result of all of that was being invited to Mexico to be in his first film, Kronos. Right. And, uh, and so now I don't, I don't have just one director who is hiring me every time he works because I have now done five things with Jean-Jacques Arnaud. Right. I have another director that I've just met and who, you know, I just finished my sixth thing with uh, a few weeks ago. And so I, I have... You know, oh, was this was this um, your Carney movie with Guillermo Nightmare? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So, you know, the the chances of there being somewhat of a frequency to my getting work was was only what was growing much slower than I had hoped for it to grow, but it was growing such a way where it had a kind of like you say, it was as far from the mainstream American movie actor careers you could possibly ask for but it had this patina of being really really weird and unique and very international and and a lot of these various esoteric people that were kind of like taking notice and deciding to use this bone structure that hollywood had no idea or desire to get in, into business with finally uh jean-pierre Jeunet invites me to play the lead role in the city of lost children 
an amazing film. Yeah. You know, and and I think that now there's a kind of like, uh, it's you know, wait a minute, how do I know that name, Ron Perlman? You know, and they go, well, yeah, he was the guy from this and that. And they, oh, that guy, he's so fucking weird. What the, who, you know, what does he really look like? Because yeah. it had just been one thing after another where you know I was. Um, you were the beast. You were mask yeah. work. Well, well, the other side of that coin was Beauty and the Beast. Here, you're in everybody's home every week, in the most mainstream medium possible, network television, with a classic uh, fairy tale story brought into contemporary life, and it's network TV, and it is could not be more mainstream. And how much of a struggle was that to put that costume and makeup on every week, every day? It was, you know, it, this isn't what's true of, because, I, you know, I put the stuff on, the four-hour makeup job is, I've probably done the four-hour makeup transformation as much as anybody. You know, maybe, maybe um, um, uh, Lon Chaney. Right, you know, supersedes me. You know, I don't even know if Boris Karloff did it more than me, and I did it on a TV show for three seasons where you know you're doing nine months out of the year. You're getting up at four a.m. You're in the makeup chair at four a.m. to be ready to shoot at eight. But the there there are so many people who who have like you know how hard is that, and the. The God's honest truth, Mick, is that the roles, the characters that I was playing, any actor would have really killed to play these roles. The character of Vincent in Beauty and the Beast was so beautifully layered and so it had a classicism that you could really say it in the same sentence as the Hunchback of Notre Dame. You could say it in the same sentence as any of these studies that that examine the dichotomy between somebody that was unacceptable on the outside, but had the most beautiful soul you've ever met on the inside. And there was never, uh, you know, the putting on of the makeup and the, the getting four hours of sleep a night and, you know, sometimes losing my health because the hours were, were so gruesome. I don't remember it ever being a burden. All I remember is I, how lucky I was to play that role. And I say the same thing about Hellboy. I say the same thing about Salvatore in the name of the Rose. The only time I don't say that is about the guy I did in uh, Island of Dr. Moreau, which you know, we won't yes. talk about at all. <laughs> well, but, we uh, certainly can. <laughs> no, we can. It's up to you. It's your podcast. It's your funeral, pal. Yeah. <laughs> After this one, this is our final episode. <laughs> I've done that to other people, by the way. You know, I should have warned you. Yeah. I've, I've shut down a lot of venerable old franchises, pal. You know, there won't be any alien movies after mine. <laughs> That's right. God help us. Uh, but, you know, when we met, it was doing Sleepwalkers. And I knew your work because I'd seen... I'd seen Quest for Fire at a screening at Fox before it came out. I had seen Name of the Rose in the theater on opening weekend. I'd seen uh, Vincent, you know, in Beauty and the Beast. And here's this wide variety of outcast type characters, but that had something gleaming within that, you know, belied the physicality of it that was really wonderful. And even though 
your character in Sleepwalkers was not one of tremendous depth or emotional sympathy. Um, it was a character I knew would be memorable. I love to cast individuals, not people. I don't want you to think when you're watching a movie, which guy was he? You know, it's everyone is distinctive. And your Soames was, uh, was an asshole, but a memorably colorful character asshole. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about you giving me that role is that I happened to be, I was playing a cop and there was this scene where a whole bunch of cops that you've never met before are surrounding this, this locale. And you got, you, you remember the guys you got to put the uniform on and do like little walk-ons in that scene? Yep. Yep. I sure did. Well, we yeah. had Joe Dante and we had John Landis and we had Stephen King and we had Toby Hooper and we had Clive Barker. And, and, and little Ron Perlman, you know, so here I was, you know, I mean, a kid in the coolest candy store you've ever been in. Um, so I'm, I'm for, I, that's a great memory of mine that I'll, I'll never, I'll never, you know, I'll, I'll never stop. That comes to mind a lot that day. And, uh, you know, it's one of those little fringe benefits that, that, um, there's a great many fringe benefits that come with being invited finally into the world of filmmaking. But that was definitely a real special day to be around yeah. those dudes. And I ended up working with Joe a couple of times after yep. that. And, and uh, did a couple of Stephen King. Well, I did a Stephen King thing that you know about really, really well. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about that, too. Yeah. Kali and Trajan in Desperation. Yeah. But uh, after Sleepwalkers, I met Guillermo because he screened when he heard that I was going to direct The Stand. He wanted me to hire Guillermo Navarro to, uh, to be the DP which was never going to happen on a network TV show with a guy who'd done this Mexican film and no American movies at the time. So he screened Kronos for me in a, in a screening room. Uh, and it was amazing. The movie was amazing. You were incredible. And this filmmaker was like, holy shit, where did he come from? And uh, so it didn't work out that, uh, that Navarro and I uh, worked together on the stand, but I always wanted to work with you again. And when it came time to return to Stephen King land and desperation years later, that was your Kali and Trajan was so textured and layered. And speaking of lots of makeups again, mm. uh, working on that regard, but we're out in the desert in Tucson making yeah. that movie. And uh, sometimes in less than pleasant circumstances, but always with a group of people that were exciting to be around. Well, the guy who put all that makeup on me, Jake Garber, he's yeah. uh, he's been in and out of my life since then. We, we, you know, he's one of my dearest friends and one of the great artists I've ever met along the way. Who I just continue to look for ways to, you know, collaborate on stuff. But I, I guess there were, you know, when you're the director of a project like that with as many movie parts. And it was a miniseries, if I'm not mistaken, right? It was originally going to be a two-parter. It turned into a three-hour movie. Yeah. But you know, you're like a you know you're 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 like a one-armed paper hanger. I mean, you you know you're the director that I was just the guy in my trailer. You know, they'd call me and I'd you know chew up a little bit of scenery and then go back and have another tuna fish sandwich. But you know, you were in the the eye of the hurricane, and it must have been uh, it must have been quite the ride. But I don't remember anything but having fun and laughs and meeting some really cool people. And uh, boy, did I have a good time playing Kali. 
it was a great time seeing you enjoy yourself so much because there was such a wide range of things for Kali to do. Mm. And, and you had so much fun with it that it, again, amplified the value of the character of Kali in the first place. So to the point where once Kali is gone, the movie takes a huge dive in energy for the rest of its playing time. Mm. Sorry about that, pal. <laughs> yeah, quit being so good that you fuck up my movie. <laughs> you got to get me back in the third act somehow. I, that's what I would love to have done. But I didn't write that one. Yeah. There was another guy yeah. named, what was his name? Steve Prince, something like that. Anyway, Martin King. Yeah, that's the guy. But one of the things that people don't know about you is how funny you are. And that's a side of you that is not used nearly as much as I expected. Because I found out, aside from loving cigars and loving Sinatra, that your sense of humor, which is on full display. I mean, you are the, now that he's gone, you are now the king of Twitter. Um, and I, I think you're <laughs> noble replacement. Um, Good riddance. Yep. I did everything I could to get rid of that motherfucker. <laughs> so, so tell me about that. How this is a different voice for you, and it's entirely your own voice. You're not interpreting somebody else. But here's a media platform that is as big as television and movies that you are a prominent voice within with very specific points of view that are your own and not a writer's. I don't. I've never really taken the time to figure out the genesis of all of that, you know, but um, um, I'm certain that, that it, it, it has something to do with coming from a, a very, very lower middle class family in a real kind of, um, I wouldn't say ghetto, but it was a neighborhood in New York where there were a lot of Holocaust survivors and it was a real melting pot. So there were a lot of old Jews that had been in the camps and stuff. And hmm. my family, was part of that representation there was you know there were you know there, there was everything it was a real melting pot but it was a lower middle class neighborhood and um my old man just in, imbued in me this you know sense of fairness and justice and you know looking out for the little guy and stuff and and the, the movies he he loved to watch the capital movies you know always we're about looking out for the little guy and, and about uh, the, the David, you know, conquering the Goliath, you know, even though he seems like he's a milk toast, you know, Jimmy Stewart and, and um, uh, Mr. Smith and, you know, Gary Cooper and, and John Doe, and, you know, a long fellow deeds and stuff. But they all have this kind of true north, which makes them rise to the occasion to win the day when they're up against somebody who was as diabolically corrupt as it was always Ed, Edward Arnold in those movies. But, you know, in our, in the time we live in, you know, it's Dick Cheney and now it's, it's uh, this, this orange motherfucker. But, um, um, I, 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 I really, really, really have this thing about fairness and decency, um, that, um, is more important to me than I than I ever actually realized until like around 2013 when I think I, I finally joined Twitter, something somewhere around that. And I began to uh, put these thoughts together that um, reflected this, these 
these values of mine that were passed down to me by by my forebears. And um, that's as much as I could say about it. I've never spent a lot of time figuring out or analyzing it, but the the more extreme the assault on justice and decency and fairness and all of the things that are promised in our founding documents and you know and articulated by great great minds but never really lived up to but the the, the more those things are under assault the more that seems to set me off and, and 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 spur me into some sort of mode where i feel like i'm expressing my outrage i don't you know and it doesn't have anything to do with like me using a platform because i don't i've never thought of myself as a successful guy even though that's a distortion in and of itself but I, it's just me speaking you know and um i don't i don't care if anybody else agrees with me or not i just have to i feel obligated to paint a picture of something that's better out there something that you can because the business that you and i are in it's, it's all about magic and inspiration and it's aspirational in nature that's why you know the, the hero always goes through all of these trials by fire in order for him to you know at the end of the day to you know to rise to the occasion save the day even if he has to give his own life and that's ingrained in us as storytellers you know and um i think that my presence you know in the social media kind of environment is just an extension of that but it's deeply deeply ingrained in me and, and i have had such a visceral hard time with this guy you know that yeah. um it had it had to come out otherwise it would have destroyed me well who are your heroes let's talk about your social heroes and then let's talk about like filmmakers or actors who inspire you but right now we're talking about the state of the world that has driven you to your to your Twitter uh, output. So who are those social people that that um, inspire you? Um, I can't think of any. <laughs> <laughs> All me, right, yeah. Nudge me. Give me. I mean, I well, have. I mean, a, is it Obama? Is it? Uh, oh uh, yeah, I, I was an Obama. I was an Obama freak. I mean, I was a, a, a total Obama groupie. And um, it's, 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 it's really interesting. Like my favorite voices these days mm -hmm. are former Republicans like Steve Schmidt. Oh, yeah. Nicole Wallace. Um, yeah. The Lincoln Project guys. Yeah. All those Lincoln Project guys. Steve is one of the founders is Rick Wilson yep. and, you know, uh, David Frum and, you know, uh, even Bill Crystal. You know, they're they're. What what I'm seeing in them, which is, which is something I would never have, in a million years, bet upon when they were when it was the Bush years, because they were they were part of that series of of, of sounds and furies, but now their 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 Americanism is is what is 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 leading the the, the charge in all of everything that they articulated, their outrage of being True former patriot. public. Yeah. They're, they're, they're outraged of being former Republicans and watching the co-opting of, of a party that used to have real aspirations and real ideals and, you know, different than mine. But but there was, you know, they, they were formidable. Their outrage is, is something beautiful to behold because it comes from such a 
you know, a primal place. Yeah. So yeah, I have a lot of heroes in, in that regard. Film wise, Jesus. Who? What were the ones that inspired? Oh, let's let's say the actors who inspired you first. The ones that thought, "Wow, I wish I could do that." Okay. Well, interestingly enough, um, and I wouldn't put this guy in a category like if if I if I want to be cheered up, if I'm in a mood that I have to get out of because it's so dark, I'll put on a Cary Grant movie. Mm. But what I started to say was the, the 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 spark that lit the fire that I coincidentally got a chance to really wallow in as an actor and explore was me sitting down with my old man. I, I, I must have been six or seven for the first time and watching Charles Lawton in The Hunchback of Notre Dame who gave this performance that, you know, even I, as, as, as a young punk who had, didn't know anything, I, this was resonating in a very deep place. In me. Mm. Like, this is like, he, he, he was the embodiment of how I felt as a kid. Somebody who, you know, don't look at me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, oh my God. that's how I felt about myself. I felt like, I felt like a misfit. I felt like I didn't, you know, I was unacceptable. And yet the soul that shone through in this performance was, um, it was, it was glorious and, it, and it, it saves the day and it makes, you know, you understand that there are things that out there that are real gold rather than fool's gold. Mm. So what I was, what I was, what I wanted to say earlier when we were talking about all these roles, like Beauty and the Beast, like Salvatore, like the, all these these characters that were kind of unacceptable on the outside, but had all these beautiful souls. When I saw that movie, I said, boy, wouldn't it be great to be able to make that statement as an artist? Mm -hmm. And then God gave me that as, as all my early acting roles, I was constantly playing that same beat over and over and over and over again. And, um, which is why I'm as happy a guy as you've ever met. I mean, I, I really did live my dream. As, as I did get to, to make my own personal statements as an artist, you know, whether they be political, whether they be places of the soul, like, like the beast, you know, like, you know, like the hunchback. Well, but, you know, your early career had lots of those roles together. You did it well, and you were very special in that regard. And the fact that your career blossomed from that and led all over the place, the variety of characters that you play, whether it's in television or in feature films, um, whatever the media, uh, you are all over the place. You are ubiquitous, even to the point of voicing characters in video games and in cartoons, you're a big part of the DC universe of cartoons. Tell me a little about the voice acting experience. So going back to those moments in the early going where I thought my career was on its way and then there would be these two or three year gaps where there was absolutely nothing and then all of a sudden something amazing would happen. Um, it was the gaps, it was me being prevented from plying my craft that, um, were the hardest things of all to navigate. I mean, when you're working and when you're successful and when you're on a roll and when you're giving, being given roles and exercises, you know, to, to do what it is that you're trained to do, that's easy. But when you're being prevented 
and you have nothing to show for your need to express yourself, your need to be in a place where you're exercising your creativity, that's really hard. And a lot of our artists um, have varying degrees of success and failure at that because that's the hardest thing that there is to navigate. And I, I, I knew those times intimately and too intimately. And I was selling my house because there was no money coming in eight or 10 times when my kids were tiny and I was trying to you know, just put food on the table. And there came a time when the only calls I got were to do cartoons. You know, <laughs> that was the only work I could get. You know, you know, $300 here, $800 here, $1,600 here. But that was the things that were sustaining me. Mm. And between me um, being so grateful that I had that opportunity to at least do something and me actually falling in love with all these great voice artists that I was surrounded by. There's an unbelievable talent out there doing these voices and video games and cartoons and animated movies, you know. And then just the simple fact that, like, I'll never say no to a job. That's why you see this almost 300 things on my IMDb list is because I don't say no. You you offer me something, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be there unless it's just I'm, I'm either, you know, been hit by a car or, you know, uh, have COVID or something. It's the only way I'm going to say no to a, to a job because wow. I remember when I would have I would have I done anything to get a job yeah. and I couldn't get a job. And uh, so that's that's part and parcel of the whole package. So but in a superhero universe, you are actually one of you played one of the most uh, well-known superheroes in in playing Hellboy. And it was a heavy duty makeup job every day before you go to work. But you're part of a superhero universe. How, how does it feel when you see all of these other uh superhero movies that you're actually a part of that when they are kind of the biggest thing in the history of film. I don't feel part of that at all. You know, I, right. I, I definitely don't feel part of uh, uh, a world that gives you the Avengers, you know, I mean, Hellboy was an art film compared to, you know, <laughs> those things, you know, Hellboy never made any money. I mean, you know, Hellboy, the fact that there was a second Hellboy was that we had a really decent DVD sale. And so that kind of, we were on the borderline of, should we do a sequel or not, you know? But there was never a mandate to do a, a, a Hellboy franchise. It was more like an art house version. Right. Well, and you're Guillermo, talking Guillermo del Toro and Hellboy. That Yeah. So I don't feel like I'm a part of that world. I did, I was in a, technically in a comic book movie or a movie that was based on, originally on a graphic novel. But I don't feel a part of... Um, um, the Marvel world or the DC world or any of those, those are, that's mainstream. You know, right. that's like, you, you know, you see a lot of just one dimensional shit that makes $895 million and you don't know how they did it. You know, we, I thought there was huge amount of humor and humanity and nuance and beautiful, beautiful scenic work and cinematography and direction yeah. in, in the Hellboy movies. And, you know, we barely broke even. So I didn't realize that. I always assumed that they were as successful as they seem to be. But there is a personality to the Hellboy movies that is far removed from all the other superhero films. And you seem to be drawn to the quirky, to the unusual. And this was certainly, of all the superheroes out there, one of the most um, uh, 
uh, iconic and, and quirky in its nature and unusual. Well, I take absolutely no credit for my being in Hellboy. That's purely 100% Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. You know, this was a dream. You know, Guillermo is, 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 is the true comic book collector. I mean, he's got mm -hmm. one of ones. He's got a collection that, you know, is in museums. They come to if they want, you know, to have the most exquisite example of a certain comic book artist's work that was very exclusive. He's the real deal. And he, it just so happened that he, he, he fell in love with this very obscure title called Hellboy. And it also happened that his dream was to have me play it. It took him almost eight years to get a studio to write the check for Ron Perlman to play the lead in what was supposed to end up being a franchise. It's a very heavy lift. So I'm only part of that because of you know this my, this guy's vision, his devotion to his idea, and uh, to his dogged nature of like I'd rather do the movie not at all than to do it you know, you know, uh, through the lens of some studio heads version right. of who's commercial, you know, and uh, that's one of the great gifts of, of my lifetime was was to have somebody fight for me to that degree and to, in, in that mainstream of, of, of a, a kind of a, uh, an environment. And to have shared an artistic vision with this filmmaker six times, and surely there will be more. I've been lucky enough to work with you too, well, three times, once as a producer on Masters of Horror for John Carpenter's second episode of Pro-Life, uh, which you were in, playing a very similar character to, uh, to what was in Sleepwalkers in a way who was an anti-abortionist. And, and I, you seem to attack that role with relish. What choice did I have? I mean, <laughs> I have to tell you, I, you know, the working with you and especially getting to finally meet and work with John Carpenter, who, you know, at, at that point I was only amused. I mean, you know, I was only a fanboy. Um, that motivated me a great deal. But but doing that part was hard because I was I was finally playing somebody who I, I could I couldn't identify with on any level. Right. And that that's difficult for me, you know, um, and I may I, you know, if it wasn't for you and John Carpenter, I would have said no. It would have been one of those rare times. And the only time I say no is when I think I'm going to stink out the joint because I don't understand the character. Or I don't relate to the character. I don't, I don't think there's anything in me to access in getting to the character. And. Yeah, I, I had a hard time playing that guy because philosophically speaking, I didn't understand him. You were at um, polar opposite ends of philosophy. Yeah, and I and 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 I didn't admire him. And you know, you, the the one thing that I, I that you know, I is you know, if there's any criteria at all, I even if I'm playing a serial killer, there's something about his wiring that I need to admire. Mm -hmm. You know, even if it's all steeped in evil, but there's a cleverness or a psychological interesting thing like Hitler has that you become fascinated with and you can admire, you can find something to admire. There was nothing about that character, I can't remember his name, Yeah, that, that I even began to admire. But because it was you and John, I, I'm there, you know, I'm gonna do the very best I can with it. I don't, you know, I think 
suck out the joint, but you know. No, no, no. And and a good actor is in whatever role. A good actor doesn't act a role. He becomes the role. And there's no way of avoiding having parts of your own self in that role unless you are wearing it like a coat of many colors rather than than inhabiting it and making it real and making it believable. So I can see how that had to have been a heavy load. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, that that's all you have as an actor. You know, you have your own understanding of humanity and, you know, you have your own understanding of the fact that on any given day you can be anything from, you know, monstrous to angelic and everything in between on any given day with any given set of stimuli. But you have your own DNA when it comes to that spectrum. And if you can't find any of your DNA in the character that is being offered to you, best say no because it's going to be an inauthentic performance yeah what appeals to you more the monstrous or the angelic or all steps in between i just really really am um, uh, a devotee of 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 clever writing you know of uh, it doesn't really matter it's never been genre it's never been um uh tonality it's it's always been originality and Am I reading something where I have no idea where the author is taking me because it's so original and so smart? And am I compelled to keep turning the page to figure out like, oh my God, where are these really interesting set of people taking me? Yeah. And then, so there's that, you know, it's just the material. It's just the cleverness of the writing, the smartness of the writing. And then the final thing is what I just said, which is, you know, I, I, I have to be able to transfer my own DNA onto whatever ends up being the performance of, of a character that they're asking me to, to go play. Um, well, what, are, I, what are the roles that you have played that you uh, remember most fondly and would most want to be represented by for people who may or may not have seen them? Um, the the beast is is a beautiful character. Yeah. I was I was really proud to play him. Um, one in uh, City of Lost Children, beautiful soul. Mm-hmm. Um, Hellboy, of course. I yeah. mean, you know, a a, a non achieving superhero, <laughs> an, un, an underachieving superhero who basically, yeah. you know. Um, has smelly socks and and, <laughs> and 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 cat cat piss and shit all over his room and eats pizza while he's watching you know Three Stooges movies and Marx Brothers movies. That's my idea of a superhero, you know. Yeah, a guy who loves um, cats. And do you love cats as well? I well, I, yeah, I'm an animal guy. Um, yeah. I don't have any cats right now. I have a bunch of dogs, but I could very easily have cats. I love cats. Yeah, but yeah, you know, and and but of late. Um, the uh, I got an opportunity to play this really interesting character on a show called Hand of God mm-hmm. for Amazon for a couple of seasons. Yeah, and it was a judge who uh, who was losing his son to what everybody thought was a suicide attempt, and his son was speaking to him through his ventilator, but it was really the voice of God directing mm-hmm. him to solve this mystery, and uh, so. That was as challenging and interesting a place to be as an actor as I think I've ever been. Uh, really complex. Uh, the guy was filled with power, 
regality, sadness, uh, fear, frustration. Um, he, you know, it was it was a bit of like playing King Lear, but you know, on network television. Uh, yeah. Well, there are a lot of colors in that performance too, and the fact that it went two seasons, you were able to show an awful lot in in a world that is not necessarily theologically um, oriented and a character who would not be accepting of that philosophy suddenly confronted by it in a way that he cannot dismiss it. There you go. I mean, you just put your finger on what made it so interesting is because that very theology that's being hammered into his consciousness totally against his will because he thinks it's, it's so full of shit is he's, you know, you talk about a biblical enlightenment that's what he's in the midst of experiencing. And that's what made it so, such a charged uh, character to play, you know, uh, somebody who's, who, who has all of the qualities of being a king and ruling a kingdom, but is in zero control, right. <laughs> you know. Uh, but so how great to want to go, how great to be excited to go to work every day with a role like that, that continues over the course of a series. And and we started to talk about it earlier with Beauty and the Beast, but uh, never really got into it. The, suddenly going from relative obscurity, despite the, the movies having attention brought to them, with Beauty and the Beast, you were suddenly familiar to everybody in America. Did you feel that change? Uh, well, yeah, I'd never imagined I was going to have my picture on the cover of Us magazine. <laughs> yeah, TV guy. You know, and, you know, being voted like in the top 20 sexiest men on television. I, ne <laughs> I never thought that was going to happen. It took four four hours of, of Rick Baker's rubber to, uh, to you know, pull that shit off. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was a kind of an exposure to, I mean, it was CBS Friday night, 8 p.m. So it was like, yeah. it doesn't get any more mainstream than that and and uh to this day there you can count the mainstream things i've done on one hand you know because most of the stuff is even the stuff that's on big network television is very obscure and doesn't last very long but um yeah you, you know the, the bells and whistles that come with being you know um in the top five on the call sheet on a on, on a cbs main um you know uh that's a hit uh, series, yeah. Prime times hit series, yeah. That that was uh, those were different plates that I was eating off of, different sheets that I was sleeping on than than I ha had ever done before. Did it give and, you a uh, sense of comfort that you hadn't had that that the crashing disappointment of Post Quest for Fire did that suddenly um, you were making good pay, you were working regularly on a hit series, being recognized. You'd been so dashed after the hopes that had been given you by Quest for Fire, did this, in, in a sense, make up for some of that? For a time, while I was doing it, for sure. I mean, the, 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 I'd never seen money like that before. No one in, in all of my family lines had ever seen money like that before. It afforded me the ability to go buy my first house, which no Perlman had ever done before. We, mm. I came from, you know, 2,800 generations of renters. You know, <laughs> yeah. And I, I, you know, I didn't know how to buy a house, but you know, there you go. I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, for the time that I was doing that show, I was doing a lot of press. I was in magazines. I had a, a couple of Emmy nominations and 
won a Golden Globe. And yeah, I was real mainstream. But the same thing happened when the show finally went off the air. My phone literally did not ring for three years. Wow. And for two and a half of those years, I didn't get out of my pajamas. I went into mm -hmm. a, a, another depression, which was a more of like a midlife crisis this time. And the mm -hmm. thing that took me out was the letter I received from Guillermo del Toro with the script called Kronos inviting me to maybe consider coming to Mexico and making his first film with him. So the Lord works in mysterious ways in my life and always has and continues to, you know, just when I feel like I'm about to crash and burn, some bird gets me in its talons and <laughs> start soaring again. Well, amazing highs to fight those crashing lows. And those lows don't come as often these days. I mean, you are everywhere. And, and there was even- I'm even doing podcasts now. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and you were brought back together with uh, Stephen King on Sons of Anarchy when he right. did that episode, which was a classic episode. If nobody has seen that, they should seek that out. Yeah. It was really, really cool being in the makeup chair next to him that day. Well, one thing, the uh, my producing partner on Desperation, Mark Sennett, and you were working on a Sinatra project. Yeah. Now, that had to be kind of a dream for you, this jazz fan and into the, the cool kind of Sinatra jazz that was happening. And, you know, you could easily have been one of the... Uh, one of the Rat Pack, it seems to me, that you could have fallen into that very well and very deeply. Yeah, I, I felt um, this uh, really strong gravitational pull to do some sort of an homage to Sinatra, which would also be a major thank you to my own dad, who I lost when he was 49, I was 19. Mm. But he's the one who, who sh took me by the hand and showed me the majesty of Sinatra. And in so doing, not just the talent, but this whole mindset, this whole kind of rat packy. I mean, back in, in those days, in the 50s and 60s, the rat pack was our version to gangster rap. You know, these were the guys that were like drinking in public and they were broads everywhere and they were bad boys. Yeah. And they were as bad boys as it got in that society. So, you know they represented so much more than just their talent. They represented a, a whole kind of like rebellious kind of like, you know, like hedonism that everybody kind of longs for it's in some part of their intestinal fortitude. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I know I couldn't do a movie where I played Sinatra. So we finally came up with this really, really phenomenal concept that me and Mark tried to get it done and tried to get it done, never really did. So it, it has remained one of those great fantasies, almost better that it, that it remained that way than we ever did it because I never got <laughs> a chance to, I never got a chance to hate it. Like I have some of the things that I actually saw through. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there something that you really want to do that you haven't done yet? You've, you've played all of these different colors, all of these types of characters, the good guy, the monster, the angel. Um, what do you really want to reach and grab that you have not done? There's not been any kind of uh, study of humanity that I have, that I have kind of missed out on. So mm -hmm. There's not a certain kind of role that 
that I'm longing to play. The thing that I'm working on these days, I'm working on a, a whole bunch of stuff. But the thing that's kind of the heaviest lift, I've been going down to Cuba a lot for the last wow. five or six years. Fantastic. And while I was down there, I met one of the, the foremost biographers of Ernest Hemingway, who had a, a, a has a house, you know, about 15 I've kilometers. I've been to that house, yeah. Yeah, the Finca. And uh, he imbued me with a story of Hemingway's last days. And I decided that I, I needed to turn that into a screenplay and shoot the whole thing, or at least 90% of the movie in Cuba with a Cuban crew, because nice. it was Hemingway's weakness for Cuba, like his, 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 his mistress. Yeah. It was one of the things that led to his death because J. Edgar Hoover didn't like the fact that he was palling around with, you know, revolutionaries and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that story has never been told, and I'm, I'm, that's that's the thing I'm working hardest to get done right now. Um, but yeah, no, I, I uh, what what has been dropping into my lap mysteriously these last at least 10, 20 years is is far beyond anything I ever dreamed I would be doing as an actor. So I've stopped trying to figure out what that next thing is going to be, and just like wait and see. Well, it's an amazing life. And uh, Ron, it is so great to catch up with you again. And hopefully we'll be able to to do it on a set together again soon. Mick, you're one of the most pure, beautiful dudes I've ever met. And I'm, I'm so glad I, when, you, when, you, when, when this whole idea of, of getting together and catching up with you came up, I just, I just got all tingly and warm inside. It's great. <laughs> it's great to see you again, pal. Uh, the feeling is, is more than mutual, Ron. Thank you so much. And Thank let's you. do it again as soon as the world heals a little more. You bet. All right. All right. Take care. Thanks. Take care, my friend. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.